Good afternoon and welcome. Uh, on behalf of the Institute for Government and Maximus, who are kindly supporting this event, thank you very much for joining us for this discussion on what a Labour government could do to improve the performance of health and care services. Uh, this is an area of huge interest uh, to the Institute. Uh, we published a report uh, earlier in the summer on hospital performance, of which Sam was a co-author. Our annual performance tracker on the state of public services uh, will be out at the end of this month. And we have other work in the pipeline uh, on prevention and capital spending, which are kind of key parts to this debate uh, as well. As Keir Starmer highlighted in his um, speech earlier, health and care services are in crisis. Uh, elective waiting lists are at record levels and continue to tick up every month. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people are waiting uh, four hours or more in A&E and many waiting for more than 12 hours. Uh, it can take weeks to get a GP appointment and access to publicly funded adult social care and community health services is limited. These problems predated COVID, but have been exacerbated by the pandemic and have not been fixed by the pretty substantial uh, increase in funding and staffing that hospitals in particular have received uh, in recent years. So how can the productivity of the health and care system be improved? Uh, should health and care services focus more on preventing illness rather than treating it? And if so, how do we transition to that? And should greater responsibility for health and care services be devolved away from national government? Discuss these issues and more. I'm delighted uh, to be joined by Andrew Gwynn, uh, the Shadow Minister for Social Care, by Sam Friedman, uh, Senior Fellow at the Institute for Government, and I should probably say Substacker uh, as well, do subscribe. Uh, Dr. Paul Williams, the UK uh, Division President at Maximus, uh, and Rachel Sylvester, a political columnist at The Times. Each of our speakers are going to make uh, opening remarks. I'll then follow up um, with a few questions of my own before opening up to questions from the audience. We will be live tweeting this event from the at IFG uh, events account uh, using the hashtags IFGLab23 and hashtag Lab23, and I'd encourage you to tweet along uh, as well. Right, without further ado, I'm going to hand over to our first speaker, Andrew Wynn. Thank you very much, Nick, and it's uh, fantastic to be here, and I want to thank IFG and Maximus uh, for having me. Uh, as Nick said, I'm Andrew Gwynn, I'm Labour's Shadow Minister for Social Care, and until the recent reshuffle, uh, I was uh, Labour's Shadow Minister for Public Health. I think it's perhaps no understatement to say we're having this conversation at a moment of real peril for our health and care services. Our NHS is on its knees. We've got record waiting lists, record waiting times, soaring ambulance waiting times, patients unable to receive the care they need in good enough time. That isn't good enough. And it will take a Labour government, as it did in 1997, to uh, turn those things round. Now, that's something that I am really relishing. Uh, but we can't just rebuild our NHS to replicate the service that we left uh, to the coalition government 
in 2010 because time has moved on. So the challenge is doubly important. We've got to fix the backlog. We've got to fix the staffing crisis in our healthcare uh, services. But we've also got to transition uh, the National Health Service away from a service that fixes us when we're broken uh, into one that prevents us from falling ill in the first place. And uh, certainly with my old public health hat on, uh, I was really pleased to see that prevention and tackling health inequalities uh, is so deeply embedded in Labour's health mission. Uh, just one example, and it means a lot to me and probably to you because you're uh, interested in health, um, but to most people outside of this conference centre, they won't have a clue what I'm talking about. But that ambition to make England a marmot nation, putting health uh, in all policy areas from cradle to grave, uh, I think could be quite transformational at tackling those inbuilt inequalities that are too prevalent in too many parts of England. Now, it's very clear um, it, with my new hat on um, as uh, social care um, shadow minister, that there is a similar crisis in the care system as well. The care system is broken. It's not working in the interests of the uh, of the person we are caring for. And so um, both Kia and Wes have set me a task, a 10-year programme of reform and renewal of our care system that will, by the end of a second term of a Labour government, uh, have us with something that looks like a national care service. I'm incredibly excited about that. I'm very impatient. There are a lot of things that we need to get done early on in the first term of a Labour government, but we have to fix our broken care service because if we don't, not only is there going to be huge problems in the NHS, there are going to be huge issues for a population that is growing older and that's a good problem we are living longer but we are living longer unhealthier lives and that's why prevention is also at the key national care service and i'll end on this because i'm probably getting very close if not over my three four minutes the national care service i will set out as the minister the what there will be national standards, there will be national terms and conditions, there will be national expectations to avoid the postcode lottery. The how it's delivered, though, will be done at the local level with local leaders taking uh, the initiative. What works in one part of the country does not necessarily work in the, uh, the neighbouring uh, district or county. We've got to innovate, we've got to allow that flexibility, but the bottom line is outcomes. We've got to have better outcomes for everybody who needs care at the time they need it, irrespective of which part of the country they live in. And that's why a national care service will make a difference. Andrew, thank you. <laughs> Sam, I'm going to come to you next. Um, <clears throat> thank you very much. Uh, lovely to be here. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, so... Uh, I'm fairly new to the world of, of health. I've spent most of my career in education policy, and I thought I thought schools were bad. Uh, and then I started working on hospitals, um, uh, seriously dysfunctional, uh, as as others have said. So the question that we sort of set ourselves to answer in the report I did uh, for the institute is: How come 
since the pandemic, we are spending quite a lot more money on the health service. We've got a lot more doctors and nurses than we did before, but we're not doing much more than we were before. In fact, in some metrics, we're doing pretty much the same or even less than we were doing before in terms of you know, seeing patients through the system. How come we've got such a long waiting list when we've put this, this, this sort of money into the system? Um, uh, and we came up with sort of three core answers to that question. The first is the simplest one, which is just hospitals are full. There's no space in any of them, um, which means that it doesn't sort of matter how many staff you hire if you haven't got enough beds um, to, to sort of process people through. Part of that is about discharge and about social care and uh, good luck to Andrew in fixing the social care system. Um, but, but part of it is just that there aren't enough physical beds. And, and one of the, I get a little bit worried about the sort of easiness of the prevention answer. Clearly, prevention is important. Uh, a part of, of and public health is important as sort of part of the picture. But if you look back over 30 years, we've cut the number of hospital beds in half. Um, and all that time we've been saying, we're gonna put more money into prevention. We're gonna be, we're, we're gonna put more money into the community. We won't need as many hospital beds. And that hasn't, that hasn't been true. We still need more hospital beds than we do have now. And I found it quite strange that when we were talking to people during the report, I'd say this, thing that seemed quite obvious to me to people and you sort of get this sort of pained look as you know it's a bit sort of old school and looking backwards to build more hospital beds but actually you just need to build more hospital beds um, and there is a there's a massive problem beyond that uh, for you know for 4, 30, 30, 40 years with underinvestment in capital in the health system even when New Labour were putting lots and lots of money into the health system in the early 2000s uh, it, it was still below the European average for capital um, and it's been well below the, the European average for, for capital over the last um, decade or so. Uh, and that's meant not only do we not have enough beds, we don't have enough machines, we don't have enough equipment. The hospitals we do have are in a bad state of repair. There's an 11 billion pound maintenance uh, sort of black hole. Um, and that means you've got a lot of doctors and nurses that you're hiring. You don't have enough space to do anything in and also are dancing around endless maintenance problems uh, in the hospitals they're working. So that's an obvious productivity problem, but it's probably the single biggest issue. Second thing was around staffing. We've increased staffing a lot, but if you look at what's happening is the average time the, 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 that your sort of average doctor and nurse has spent in the health system is dropping. Uh, quite dramatically. So we're losing experienced staff and we're getting a lot of churn in the system. We're hiring in loads of new people, many of whom are not from uh, the UK, um, but we are, um, we're losing people at the top of the system. And what that means is that, you know, inexperienced staff are just less productive than more experienced staff because they are still learning uh, on the job and, and, and what they have to do. And you're also losing the experienced doctors who can do the in-hospital training. So it's sort of all very well to say, we're going to increase the number of university places for uh, medical degrees but if you don't have experienced people in hospitals you can then train them in the latter part of their training you're just going to get a blockage there instead so um, how we retain experienced staff and obviously pay as part of that um, conditions are part of that as well as we can see from the sort of ongoing industrial action at the moment that sort of um, question number two and then the final point is the NHS is is like seriously underpowered when it comes to management. Uh, not in every part of the system. There's a lot of managers in some parts of the system, probably not where they need to be. Um, but, but, but in hospitals, doing this sort of core job of process management within hospitals, we, we don't have enough people. They're not experienced enough. We've got too much churn. And we've lost a lot of the experience from 
this was the last time we had to go through this process of bringing down waiting lists in the 2000s. Um, you know, we learned a lot during that, and then the absolutely diabolical Andrew Lansley reforms um, meant we lost a lot of those people uh, over over a few years. And since then, it's got that sort of job of, of of managing processes. If you think about discharge as a classic example of a complex process where you're trying to move people through a system, uh, and you want to have some systems in place to do that, rather than relying on individual uh, doctors and nurses to make it work. And you need experienced, knowledgeable managers to do that. And we are seriously lacking uh, in that compared to other countries. There is a sort of myth that we're overmanaged and that there are too many managers. Um, you know, we we are we, we the NHS spends far less on admin and management than the OECD average and most other countries. So um, it's a real uh, so being underpowered in that space is a real issue as well. So if you if you want to look at productivity, and as Keir Starmer was talking about reform again today, you've got to turn what you've got that big word reform has to be turned into something. Um, and uh, those are the three areas which we picked on as being absolutely critical to any reform program. If you want to get more for the money we're putting in, we're going to have to put in more money as well, of course. But if you want to get more money for more 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 bang for your buck from that, you need to look at capital and shift money into capital um, and, and just create more capacity. You need to look at how we retain experienced staff and we need to look badly at management in hospitals. Thank you, Sam. Uh, on that retention point, it would be remiss of me not to mention that the Institute published an excellent report just today uh, on how to retain staff uh, across public services. So do read that. If I'm sure you've already read it, but if you haven't, uh, do have a read of it. Uh, I'm going to come to our next speaker, Paul Williams. Uh, hi, thank you. Um, my name is Paul. I'm a uh, medical doctor, but I'm trying to do something about that. Uh, I have been for 35 years, and the first 15 were in the NHS, and then since then I've been a consultant occupational physician working in a variety of organisations in and out of the NHS. So given that my whole working life really has been about how we keep people safe and productive in their jobs, I would start by advising a new Labour government, or indeed, you know, the current one, if they had the time to do it, to really reimagine the relationship between the NHS as, as an employer and the staff that they employ. Uh, and I'd think about that really right from the right from the bottom up. I mean, I'm, I know um, personal stories don't make for great evidence, but I'm going to share with you that. Um, no worries. Is that better? I'm going to share with you, you know, one of my wonderful children is a, an NHS junior doctor. She's now on her 11th job, slogging herself away. And the, um, one of the things that massively impacts her productivity is, despite this being her 11th job, she's never yet actually been paid at the end of the first month of her new job beyond a few hundred quid, because it seems to come as a shock to NHS employers that they employ doctors. And you'd think they'd have got the hang of that by now. So I would think you could make people happier and more productive by paying them. And there's a bunch of other hygiene factors that if you were to engage not just with junior doctors, but with nurses, physios, OTs, and non-clinical staff in hospitals that drive them absolutely potty, that good line management could almost certainly sort out. So I'm very much in Sam's camp that investing in good line management and leadership is going to be 
absolutely critical if the NHS is going to be more productive. When I used to do NHS clinics, seeing patients who were basically burnt out and fed up with working in the NHS, it was always the line manager that was the problem, or the head of department in some ways. Now, you know, having done some, because I'm a you know clinician more by background, I'm not really a, a health policy thinker, but everything that one reads about this, it really isn't clear to me if I was a trust executive where my accountabilities would start and finish. And I, so I think it's not clear to me what the Department for Health does, frankly. And I, I think the relationship between them, the the, uh, the chairs and chief executives of trusts, we, we're probably going to speak about a capital investment. I mean, it's almost impossible to spend money. People have to give it back. The, it, it, can't, it must be an absolute tragedy when the NHS is crying out for funding for people not to be able to spend the budgets they've actually got because there's just so much red tape to go through. So one of the questions we need to look at is how we take some of the authority and control away from the centre and trust local experts that we employ to deliver health services locally to get on with it. And that, I'm not sure how I'm doing for time, but my other sort of key point, I think, would be about where health is delivered. I, I, we can talk about preventive health briefly. Uh, we as an organisation provide preventive health services, so we've got some first-hand experience of doing that and with, for various local authorities. And one of the challenges I think government faced there, frankly, is if my public health colleagues were here from those commissioning authorities, they would say it's politically quite easy to take money away from local authorities and it's very difficult to take it from the NHS. So that the preventive health agenda in this country has been simultaneous, been systematically defunded for years and that needs to turn around. And if we're going to get to a true marmot-like health service, we really need to think about how we fund specifically primary and secondary health prevention measures, but how we, how we build health into every policy decision that we make. And finally, let's meet people where they're at. I was just come from a meeting where we we're talking about funding for conditions. Now, there may be other clinicians in the room, I suspect, and I, I think we had a quick show of hands the last time you saw a patient who only had one condition. It, you know, it doesn't happen. We rock up. I myself have three or four, and yeah, I'd regard myself as healthy. You know, most people have a good half a dozen if they manage to get past sort of their mid-40s, and they... <laughs> So the idea that you've got to go from one location to another to see somebody else to have some, I mean, most, most healthcare professionals train in a very, very generalised way. So the idea that they can't slightly tinker with your statin one day because they happen to be a neurologist is total nonsense. So we could reduce... Most patients would say, could I just come once and get sorted out. I mean, we used to have GPs who used to do general things, and we used to celebrate general physicians and general nurses who knew a lot about lots of things, and now we've got hyper-specialised, and that is such a waste of resources. Paul, thank you very much. Uh, and now to Rachel, our final speaker. Thank you. Um, so I'm chairing a health commission for the Times at the moment, and previously... I chaired an, an education commission. And one of the figures that shocked me most is that spending on health has gone up 42% since 2010. Spending on education has gone up 3%. So we're never going to have a balanced budget and a balanced kind of balance between the different public services if we don't do things differently in the NHS. It can't keep just throwing money at the problem. Um, 
And I think the answer is to stop fixating on hospitals, which are the most expensive part of the system. And all the financial incentives within the NHS drive patients into hospital, drive doctors to send people into hospital, suck people into operations. Hospitals are paid by the kind of procedure they do rather than the outcomes for the patient. So the whole system creates this these dysfunctional incentives which are making are driving up cost and not really good for patients in the end. Um, I went to, So I hear what Sam's saying about hospital beds and I think he's right about that, but one of the problems is that too many people are ending up in hospital. Um, so I went to Denmark to look at what they do differently uh, and they've halved the number of hospitals while improving outcomes, reduced the number of inpatient beds by a fifth. But they do it by making sure all the other bits of the system are also working. So for example, if you're a patient who's ready to be discharged in hospital and there isn't social care capacity for you, the local municipality has to pay for the hospital bed until they have the capacity for you. As a result, there are virtually no um, people in hospital who are ready to be discharged. We have 10% of our beds taken up by people who are ready to to be discharged, many of them who should be in social care. Uh, so I really hope Andrew manages to find not only a solution, but also a way of paying for it. Um, so secondly, that means dealing with uh, prevention. I know that's a sort of word that covers a million sins, literally in the case of um, eating badly and drinking and smoking. But actually, uh, to have a government that has the political courage to tackle the obesity crisis in the way that multiple commissions, including a brilliant report from the Institute for Government, have argued. Uh, everyone knows that's got to be done. Uh, it's costing six billion to the NHS a year already, will be 10 billion <coughs> over the next um, five years, I think, if we don't really deal with that. So social care, obesity, and then you've got to use technology properly. It's completely ridiculous that you get letters um, sent by the NHS that arrive after your appointment often. Um, I did a story last week that the NHS is spending has spent a billion pounds over the last five years storing paper records, whereas, you know, it just seems to be completely unnecessary. Um, there's one, at some hospitals, one hospital, Milton Keynes, has got rid of its paper archive, um, got a whole suite of consulting rooms and training offices um, because they've digitized all their paper records. So they don't have those storage. Some hospitals are kind of renting storage units off-site because they've got so many paper records. And meanwhile, the patients aren't getting the letters in time. So the consultants are sending letters to the GPs. The GPs are sending letters to the consultants. It's a kind of crazy merry-go-round. Um, so in terms of reducing the focus on hospitals, it, the way technology can help with that is it empowers the patient. The patient should have their data. The patient should book their appointments uh, at the hospital, at the GP, be able to see their test results. And that means rebalancing the relationship between patient and clinician to really empower the individual. Um, I was in Spain last week and I thought, and a couple of weeks ago, and it was really fascinating. They don't talk about people, the patients, they talk about the citizens because they say, actually, we want to create, we want a health service. We don't want a sickness service. Uh, and I, I thought that was quite a good way of thinking about it. So don't kind of turn people into patients, turn them into 
citizens who are in charge of their own health um, and encourage people to take responsibility. And I, the, so I think there is political courage required for all three of those, actually, um, to take on vested interests and to, to sometimes challenge the electorate. But I think the voters would be up for it if there was leadership, because I think uh, they want a system that works when they want it, as they need it, uh, not in the way that's been done since 1948. Thank you, Rachel. Um Andrew, I'm going to come to you first. Um, Keir Starmer, in his speech earlier, and it was largely in relation to kind of uh, investment, uh, business and growth, he said that sometimes you need to invest money to save money in future years. Is that something that you think also applies to our health and care service? Well, obviously, um, if you're going to make the transition from the healthcare system we've got to the one that we want uh, it to be, um, then there's going to have to be some level of investment. So we have committed to a workforce plan. The government have adopted that. Um, we've also uh, committed to getting the backlog sorted, um, which is going to uh, be a major focus of the early years of the next Labour government. Uh, but we've also got to make that shift to prevention, and the whole point of uh, the health mission, it's not really a health mission, it's a mission for the entire Labour government, because literally, if you are going to embed uh, health in all policies, it can't be done by the Secretary of State for Health or the Public Health Minister. It has to be done by the Prime Minister and Secretaries of State across the whole of government. And that's why... Uh, we are committed to setting up a, a mission delivery board at the heart of government that will drive these things uh, forwards because it is about housing, it's about early years, it's about education, it's about the air we breathe, it's about uh, good social services, it's, a, it's about uh, good community services, it's about training and education, it's about creating jobs and if you're um, not fortunate to live in an area where those jobs have been created, it's about having good public transport so you can get from where you live to where the jobs are. Uh, it's about everything that affects our daily lives. Um, government decisions impact on our health and well-being right up to good quality end-of-life services as well. So this is a truly ambitious programme and it is going to require investment across the whole of government. It's not for the Department of Health, it's not for uh, just the NHS, it's for the whole of government to transform how we deliver public services and ultimately how we improve the lives, the health and the well-being of the citizen. At the end of that, um, the kind of the 10 years that Keir Starmer spoke about earlier, the kind of the mission and the kind of the 10 years you said on the National Care Service, at the end of that 10 years, do you think we should be expecting or would you be expecting that we would be spending less in real terms on hospitals and that some of that money would instead be going to the wider parts of the health and care and public service infrastructure? So look, what, we, what we've said is that there has to be a shift in how we deliver health care uh, in in England. So yes, there will be a move from hospital to the community, uh, to primary care, to, um, to, to better access to health services, um, including from pharmacies and, uh, and, and 
So that shift from hospital to uh, the locality is really crucial. Uh, the, the advances that we've got uh, in technology, um, Wes likes to say from analog to digital, uh, but there is a huge um, set of advances that we can, um, we can grasp with uh, AI, with uh, new technological advances, with um, pharmaceutical advances as well, life sciences and investing in those things here uh, in England. And then obviously the shift from fixing people when they're broken uh, to preventing them from getting broken in the first place. Those three things all have to happen. Uh, and it will, uh, I think, take that decade of reform. But at the end of that decade, I think we will have better health outcomes. We will have better access to services, better treatments. But ultimately, for the patient, they will have better health and well-being. Uh, Paul, I want to come to you next. If there is going to be an investment in the health and care system, where do you think that investment is likely to be most effective, most productive and have the biggest impact on people's lives? Oh, well, uh, I probably coming back to my opening remarks, I, I think there needs to be investment in the relationship between the service and its staff. And I think there's good evidence from uh, probably well, every enterprise that's ever been studied, and I don't see any reason why health would be different, but there's certainly evidence from healthcare that good leadership and good management produces not just better retention uh, and, uh, and more efficiency, but clinical outcomes are improved as well. Clinical errors are substantially reduced and, and outcomes are much better. So that would be, uh, I guess, my key area. question is how to do that, and there are some number of, of of ways that one might go about raising leadership and management capability. But I think alongside that, we need to prepare the NHS workforce for the huge transformation that is coming their way in terms of technology. I mean, there's absolutely, you can't wake up on, and read a newspaper or pick up the radio or listen to the radio without being a new story about AI. Um, I was at the Royal Society recently. The, the the rapid deployment and uh, improvement in augmented reality as as a, a as a system for uh, for improving clinical outcomes has just accelerated hugely. Uh, but we're in a service where people can't get access to sit down and write up the clinical notes on a laptop. So go figure. That we are going to need to take those million people along with this technology. Just yeah. on its own, throwing money at technology isn't going to fix everything. We need to find a way, and it's not unique to healthcare, technology is coming at us, AI is going to take up a lot of the work that human beings traditionally did. We're going to have to adapt to how we work and I think taking a cohort of people in the NHS safely along with that is, is something that requires a lot of thought and, and investment but there's, there's optimism there if you look at uh, radiology as a clinical specialty where people are doing uh, imaging for investigation of various uh, health complaints that's an area of clinical practice where AI is probably its most advanced and rather than the number of radiologists going down it's gone up year on year. It's actually created more jobs for radiologists because there's much more that they can be doing with their time, it turns out. So they, um, so I, th I think it can also, we should be really optimistic about healthcare because I think in terms of its adoption of technology, 
uh, I think it can also be a lesson to wider society. Sam, I want to come to you next. Um, quite aside from investing more, clearly uh, spending plans uh, from 2025, 26 onwards and the, ne the next spending review period are quite tight. How, how tight are they and what impact do you think that would have on public service performance and health and care performance if, if it was delivered at that level? So currently, from 2025 to 2028, the government are projecting to increase spending above inflation by 1% across the whole public sector. That would get all absorbed by the workforce plan alone. That sucks, that sucks up all of that 1% for the whole public sector. Um, that leaves nothing for anything else. Um, and uh, there, there's also a commitment to increase defence spending as well. So you start to see cuts in other departments. It's not realistic. Um, the next government, whoever they were, would have to increase spending more than the current projections. Uh, I know no one wants to talk about it at the moment, but it is just blunt reality that they, they will have to do that somehow or another. Um, the health system, in, in since we created the NHS, health spending has gone up on average by about 3% a year above inflation. That's true everywhere in the world. It will keep being true. It will be true, however, whatever you do in terms of sort of productivity reform, uh, because healthcare costs are getting more expensive and populations are aging. What you want to try and do with productivity reform is keep that from going even higher, right? That it, it, it is going to go up. You are going to have to find more money um, than than anyone is currently prepared to talk about. That's before you get to social care, which is a whole lot sort of, you know, is also in, in, you know, massively going to increase in cost under the current system, just because, again, uh, we have such a, a, a sort of a, a, an aging population. So uh, it is a sort of frustration at the moment with politics that we sort of all have to live in this world confined by uh, a, sort of a set of pretend spending statistics. But that, that's where we are now. After the election, I think uh, uh, we're going to have to have a serious conversation about uh, what what's really needed, Rachel? I, I want to talk about that uh, <laughs> the, the the political courage point. Uh, as Sam says, no one really wants to have the conversation about taxation now and the kind of the, what it means for levels of public spending. Do you think, as Sam says, there will be more of a space after the next election? Say it was a a, a Labour government with a relatively healthy majority to to make that case. It's hard because if they've gone to the election electorate with a very particular set of promises and then tear them up, that's very dangerous. Remember what happened to Nick Clegg and tuition fees. Um, but I think Sam's absolutely right, particularly on social care, actually, um, which, as Andrew, I'm sure, knows very well, there is going to have to be lots more money found from somewhere. Uh, and you can't find that from efficiency savings in the NHS or other departments, because they've been pretty squeezed to the bone. Um, so, I I mean, I don't quite know how you square that circle. The only thing I'd say on taxation and social care is I think if there are tax rises needed, they need to be um, generationally fair. I think the, the younger generation, the working age population has really paid out a lot already in many, many ways. And there needs to be a way of finding, raising the money, um, not entirely, but more from older people. Uh, and I think that that could be politically viable. But if it looks like you're breaking your manifesto pledges, that's a disaster. Um, I'm now going to open it up to questions from the audience. So if you have a question, can you uh, please raise your hand, then wait for the microphone to come to you. Uh, say your name. And can I please ask at this 
our final fringe uh, that you keep them as questions and not long statements. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, I'm going to go to uh, the gentleman here just in front of you, then the lady and then the gentleman next to him. Hi, I'm Robert Liao from Sarko, um, but I'm also a Labour Party member. Uh, Rachel, I've read a few of your articles in the Times. I've really enjoyed them. But what I've really enjoyed is reading the articles about the use of technology in the Israeli health sector and uh, the use of robots in the Japanese social care sector. Uh, th th those, those are the ones that really stru uh, uh, stuck with me. So my question, although it's for the entire panel, anyone who cares to answer, is um, what are the most exciting tech or AI innovations that you've seen that you think the next Labour government should focus on if uh, if Labour wins the next election. Thank you. Uh, and the lady just behind. Hi, Jerry Mitchell. I'm an independent researcher and I've just published a book on what high earners think about inequality. It's called Uncomfortably Off and is available <laughs> at Black Cross Bookstand. Please, only pissing of IFG reports here. To be quick. <laughs> Studies of poorer but more equal countries than Britain um, have better health comes in the UK, so they show that equality is key to improving everyone's health. Higher average material standards no longer improve well-being, except under conditions of austerity. There's also little to no correlation between national income and changes in life expectancy. So I'd like to know what the panel um, have to say about that. And private equity and social care, just for Andrew, please. Thank you. And gentlemen next to you. Thank you, Chair. I'll stand up because I don't think uh, anyone can see is hidden in the corner. Um, we know po poverty virtually guarantees ill health. And I think that's one aspect we really need to consider. From Andrew, um, politicians saying what you're saying is exactly what we want to hear, as uh, my job role is a clinical lead in the NHS. Um, I also believe we're medicalising social issues such as poverty, and we can't fix that with a pill. Mm -hmm. However, if you look at the prescribing rates of opioids and antidepressants, you will see they are sometimes five, six-fold in the most deprived areas, like mine in the northeast of England. So my question is, will we, as a Labour government, be looking to fund self-management strategies and services such as I lead um, in the northeast of England to prevent some of these issues and hopefully um, save the NHS much further down the line. Thank you. Uh, Andrew, I'm going to come to you first. Um, well, yeah, it's something that I'm really quite interested in because when I was uh, with the public health brief, uh, I was looking at precisely some of these issues and you're absolutely right in terms of uh, medicalising poverty in, in, in many ways. Um, so self-management strategies absolutely have to be part of the, the solution. Um, and uh, I'm sure that Preet will carry on where, where I left off, but I, I am you were pu pushing on a, a, an open door with that particular uh, issue, along with social prescribing. Uh, my own constituency was a social prescribing pilot, and I saw the real benefits of joining up uh, lots of different public services um, so that uh, GPs, rather than just treating one side of the issue, of often the medical side of an issue, actually were able then to facilitate the um, 
the other stuff that was going on that led to them going to the doctor in the first place. I mean, I always think that GPs and MPs are often two sides of the same coin because a lot of the times we're dealing with exactly the same people who are coming to us with exactly the same problems. It's just we're dealing different with different parts of the the issue. So they'll come to me with housing or debt or uh, an, an issue that they want me to resolve that's also causing them health problems that they then go to the GP and present with. And actually, with through social prescribing, you can deal uh, with that person holistically in the round, and and, and it really works. Uh, in terms of um, private equity in uh, social care, this is something we've got to get these shysters out that are delivering poor quality care, ripping people off, that are taking the profits um, excessive profits out of the care uh, system and we will do it by setting national standards that the Care Quality Commission will be the main regulator of uh, so that if their tax affairs aren't transparent, if they can't guarantee quality of service, if they can't guarantee terms and conditions that fit uh, with the New Deal for work that Angela Rayne has put put forward, then they will not be allowed to operate in our national care service. And I think that is uh, really important. And then on tech and AI, there is so many uh, advances. As Paul said, you know, there's not a day goes by that you switch on the telly or you open a newspaper and there's something really quite transformational. So I can't pluck one out of thin air. Um, but look, we've got to grasp this technology and it does mean that we have to train up the workforce to, to maximise the benefits of it. But this could be the big game changer in a lot of different uh, healthcare needs in this country if we get the marriage of the right technology uh, with uh, the right healthcare the outcomes for the person will be so much better on a whole range of conditions. Rachel, particularly on the, that mm. tech point, the most exciting innovations. Yeah, thanks for reading the Commission's work. Um, it is it is amazing. This isn't the future. This is the present. It's now. It's now. It's happening. Yeah. It's being rolled out around the world and in some parts of the NHS. Um, if I chose three... Uh, I'd say uh, give all patients some kind of patient passport, patient portal. In Estonia, they have a, in, and Denmark and, and Israel, they have, if you're a patient, you have your, on the app, you can book all your appointments, you can see your test results, you can see your medical records, um, and all the clinicians or relevant people can do the same. Uh, so there's obviously data privacy issues, but in this country in large parts of the NHS, even within one hospital, different departments can't see the same records. Um, and I, uh, we heard from one, the president of the Royal College of Physicians, very senior consultant, who is doing the ward rounds during the, during the junior doctor strike. And it took her so long to log on to the computer that she was wasting her time. And then at the end of the shift, she realized she couldn't cut and paste information. So she had to retype multiple times all the uh, reports that she was doing. So you need to invest in the hardware and you need to make sure the data, you know, all the bits can talk to one another through with the patient owning the data. Then obviously robotics is incredible. I found the robots in the Japanese 
care homes a tiny bit creepy, but robotic <laughs> surgery is absolutely transformatory for outcomes. This isn't the kind of, you know, um, it, it means patients can go home sometimes on the same day or certainly the next day from operations where previously they'd have been there a week. Um, and then AI is on so many levels is um, something that I think the health service has got to embrace. Obviously, they've got to be safeguards and you've got to make sure that the data set is properly reflective of the population. Um, but uh, both for um, diagnostics, as you said, uh, there's, a, there's a thing for dermatology that's a bit like the plant finder app. So you show it at the mole, and it's a bit like the Plant Finder app that identifies the plant. It says whether it's potentially cancerous. Um, so that is a great, you know, that at least as the sort of first triage, you kind of cut out a whole level of appointments, perhaps. You go straight to the specialist if you have got a potentially risky mole. Um, but also in terms of um, rotors, for staff or routes for care workers. Um, there's one company that um, has digitalized the care, social care, and the workers, they do two extra appointments a day and they take home, their, their take home pay is 30% greater, even though the costs are no greater because they've cut out, reduced the traveling time by just making the routes more efficient. Sort of very simple, solutions and that can work also for staff rotors in hospital you maximize you give people choice but you also maximize the um, workforce in its most efficient way uh, so those I think those three I mean those are, and then actually I've got to also mention genomics um, because that's transformatory in terms of predicting who's going to get ill so I mean, already this is the technology exists, you know, the $100 or £100 to sequence the genome and work out which people are most likely to get breast cancer, lung cancer, and then you target them. So they get the people who have a 15% chance of getting breast cancer, maybe get their mammogram at 40, uh, and people who haven't have got a very low risk, maybe wait until 50. So you taught much better targeting using genetics um, and genetic susceptibility. So I do think it's, I know there's loads of reasons to be worried about the health service, but there's so many reasons for optimism with this technology. It's absolutely transformation. It's blown my mind away. Yeah. Just to quickly pick up on that rotoring point, we spoke to someone working in a hospital and they said, I just want to be able to book my wedding day off a year ahead, but I can't because the rotor is done a few weeks before by hand by the consultant, and I therefore have to swap out with someone closer to the time. And that kind of basic stuff would make a huge difference yeah. to how much people um, felt appreciated by the service. Paul, I wondered if you wanted to come in on the well, I Well, I totally echo the bit about the routers and then if it could actually feed into payroll, coming back to my opening remarks as well. <laughs> no, definitely, why not? Well, absolutely. Well, I only boost morale, but it does mean that perhaps you could go into medicine without having parents who can bail you out every time you don't get paid at the end of the month. That would help with some inequalities, leaving other, uh, leaving other issues aside. 
Um, I think also, please, Rachel mentioned DNA, because I, I was going to come to genetics as being a sort of technology that we haven't really spoke about. We tend to speak about AI and other things. And I, I think probably half the people in this room will know their genome in the next, I'm going to say, two years, because it's just going to be so cheap and you'll be able to get it done online really easily. So why not? And, uh, and I've got to tell you, I'm only an N equals one physician, but I have no idea what to do with the information. If you come and see me and slightly concerned about something wobbly on the long arm of chromosome 17. So uh, I think that is going to be a huge challenge because everyone's going to know this information because it's cheap. And, uh, and, and I don't know that we've even begun to think about We've begun to think about genetic tests for certain conditions and the, and the, the um, you know, the test for 50 common cancers, or I can't remember the name of it, the gallery, is it, that's that's coming up? You know, we've started to think about the services for that, but they're very specific things. You've got an increased risk of this or that. But once you've got your whole genome, I've no idea. So that's quite a, on the one hand, it's a hugely inspiring leap forward, but it feels almost like the sort of medical version of nuclear power to me. I'm not quite sure that the society is quite ready to to be trusted with the information once once we've got it. So that's quite scary. I've seen some really inspiring uh, augmented reality technology for surgery. I mean, if you're a vascular surgeon and you can have the 3D MRI of where all the blood vessels are right in front of your face before you cut the patient open, not only do you get a better job, but you probably halve the anaesthetic time, so you reduce the cognitive function impairment and the surgical risk. So there's like really amazing stuff like that. But equally, while I've been sat here, let's not neglect the less sexy technology. So to your point, Rachel, about um, you know appointments and things like that. So I've been invited for my um, seasonal flu and COVID vaccine, and I can apparently go online and choose the time and choose my appointment. Now, if that's not much more efficient than the previous way, I don't know what is. So in, not um, sexy, In Israel, there's a helpful. doctor who's created a machine to do 3D printed personalized surgical instruments so the precise shape of the tumor that needs to be cut out don't tell me you'll probably know how this works but so there's a so much personalization is going to come i think it is for a moment i thought you were going to say do it yourself by no. the patient there. <laughs> <laughs> um sam i just want to come to you on that a kind of equality point and what you make of the evidence on the link or lack of it between kind of uh GDP, wealth, uh, and outcomes, and what kind of implications that has for policy? Um, yeah, there isn't. It's true. There's no particular link between GDP and outcomes. I mean, partly because America has really, really bad outcomes and very, very high GDP, um, which tends to skew things somewhat. Um, uh, so, you know, I think GDP... I mean, I'm not going to go off on a riff on GDP, don't worry. <laughs> GDP is a very odd thing that we sort of assume means growth, and it actually means lots of other things. Um, but uh, but for the purposes of, um, uh, of thinking about healthcare, it's not a particularly useful measure as a percentage that you're spending of GDP. Um, I, I did. I, I wanted to make a couple of other points on the other questions. Uh, on 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 the technology, I always get I get a bit allergic and skeptical to techno optimism. Always, uh, I sort of come out in a rash um, because uh, you know technology has improved a lot over the last uh, you know seventy years in many ways, and it hasn't made healthcare any cheaper, it's made it more expensive because we keep people alive longer, which is a good thing. We want to do that, but it doesn't make it cheaper. Um, so uh, I think it's, it's, it's not going to make things, it's probably not going to make things cheaper, even if it makes things better. The other thing is, you know, the NHS doesn't have a great history at doing massive transformational tech projects across the whole of the organisation. Um, 
So I would just settle for everyone having a computer that worked and turned on in less than 10 minutes. If we could do that, that would be an amazing achievement that would be, <laughs> yeah. that would Im improve the health. Then we could get onto the, to, to, to the really whizzy stuff. Something for Keir Starmer's pledge card at the next election. <laughs> um, I think we've got time for another round of questions. Uh, we'll go for this gentleman uh, in the front here, uh, and then these two here as well. I hope it doesn't require many notes. Uh, <laughs> Quick question, please. Um, we've just been talking about how um, early prevention diagnoses are important. Oh, sorry, I'm, my name's Jordan from the National Deaf Children's Society. Um, with so 39% of paediatric uh, children's hearing services are missing their initial uh, target for initial assessment of, um, of hearing tests. Uh, for, 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 um, so I just wanted to ask if you would support the creation of a national advisor for audiology service in England to give the service kind of that leadership uh, and kind of direction that, that it needs. Um, it's also, I um, just want to add, is only, only 35, I think, out of 130 uh, children's audiology services are accredited. And I think it's important, you know, in terms of this really basic thing that you can do to drive up standards would be to have the all audiology services, uh, children's, audiology, children's audiology services uh, accredited. But yeah, thank you. Thank you. My name's Norman Phillips, I'm a carer, but that's not what I'm I. I spent three years working on the patient's record system, which died because we didn't take the front line with us. What's terrifying me about technology is I hear what you're saying. You've got a massively demoralized workforce. How are you going to take them with you? Their eyes roll. Thank you. And gentlemen, fine. Hi, I'm Rob Barnett. I'm a GP in Liverpool. I'm here with Rebuild General Practice. A lot, of, uh, a lot was said about investing more in secondary care. Actually, if 90% or more of care takes place in primary care, and, but 90% of the funding goes into secondary care, surely there's a mismatch. And if we really want to improve performance, we need to do something that helps us retain GPs, improve the continuity of care that we can give in the primary care sector and invest in premises in primary care, not invest in shiny buildings, secondary care, which actually does not that much in actually improving health of patients. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. I'm going to come to you first this time. Um, so I, 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 on the question about technology, that, that's exactly my worry, right? You, you, it we can sound all look very exciting to us, but for people who are dealing with uh, extremely difficult jobs, who've been through endless change management processes before, which have been they found immensely frustrating. Um, so that that's kind of why I like keep your initial ambitions low, show some wins, make some progress, uh, and then you can start sort of showing you're being more ambitious and starting to throw around management consultancy language, because um, otherwise it will just um, it will just put everybody off. So I, I completely agree with that point. Um, on the point about primary care, I mean, it's true that uh, we, we perhaps don't talk about it as much as we should compared to secondary, but uh, equally, um, I think we're, not, we're never going to get to a place where we can sort of take money off hospitals. It's not going to be because we've got a massive backlog in hospitals. We've got huge waiting lists in hospitals. Uh, they also, we haven't talked about structures at all, probably mercifully for the audience, but you know, in the new structure, the, the, the ICS model of, 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 sort of the, the NHS, hospitals still have enormous power over, over funding pathways. So it's not going to, 
it, unless um, uh, Andrew and his colleagues fancy another major restructure, which I doubt they will, at least in, early on, that's not going to change. So we have to think about um, how we can support uh, primary care and community care uh, and public health without sort of trying to imagining that we're going to be able to ho get hospitals to give up their, 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 their money. Rachel, on that tech point, in all those examples that you've cited from other countries, how have people taken the workforce with them on that journey? Yeah, I mean, the thing, the point is, it's not it's to not see it as tech. So we don't care how, I haven't got my phone here, amazingly, but we don't care how the phone works. We care that it helps us book appointments, you know, or book a restaurant, listen to music, download a film or whatever. So I think in terms of the staff, it's about how it makes their life easier. So um, at Milton Keynes Hospital, which I mentioned before, for example, there's, they've got an app where they can book their shifts, they can do any hours they want, any combination of days. Um, they don't have to do 12-hour shifts, or they can. Um, and they, it just makes their life easier. There's also another thing they use to, to transcribe. It's an AI thing that transcribes the medical notes. So the doctor walks around uh, and the machine then, he just then or she reads through the notes that have been transcribed through AI to check they're accurate, corrects anything, but it takes seconds rather than minutes to type up the notes. Um, so th if you make it practical things that make it life easier, and the same for patients, we don't care whether or not there's some federated data platform or some sort of massive new system, so long as it makes life easier for us. That's the way you've got to sell it, I think. And I think the way, in many, many ways in which it would make life easier in all those sort of very, actually quite apparently small, but actually incredibly important practical ways. Um, and then a whole team of geeks can deal with the wiring behind the system, if you like. Thank you. Andrew, on the general... No offence to geeks, sorry. <laughs> None taken. Uh, um, Andrew, on the general practice point, we, we have fewer uh, fully qualified full-time GPs than we had uh, five years ago, despite the pledge to increase them. Other than uh, implementing the recommendations of our report on retention in public services, how would you keep those people in post? And also, do you... Is general practice part of your kind of vision for where greater focus should go under a Labour government? It is, and part of the reason why we need this shift from hospital to community uh, is so that we can rebuild primary care services and community services uh, in England, because often the reason that there are problems in our hospital front door, and uh, it tends to be uh, in long A&E waits is because people find it really difficult to access even the most basic uh, health care at a locality level. And that in part is because uh, of the shortage of GPs and the ever-increasing pressures on GP surgeries. It's also because we don't really organise our primary care services in a sensible way, whereby it's easy to access um, simple treatments there's a lot more that pharmacies can do for example and lots of communities have them uh, so it's easier to access often than uh, even uh, your GP if you're lucky enough to get an appointment um, so there's a big piece of work that we're going to have to do to transform primary care and community care um, I take entirely um, your 
um, argument in the mismatch in funding. We are not going to have another top-down reorganisation. You can all breathe a sigh of relief uh, at that. Uh, we think we can work well with the ICS-ICB model. However, the ICBs, the boards themselves, have to reflect the changes that we want to see uh, in the uh, healthcare model. And quite frankly, you are not going to get those changes if the hospital is overly dominant on the ICB. So we need to make sure that the ICB is far more reflective of the kind of healthcare model we want to create with community and primary care and public health taking a much greater uh, role in that. And the challenge for hospital trusts is to reinvent themselves as integrated care providers. And that is already happening in a number of parts of the country. My own constituency, Tameside Hospital, became Tameside and Glossop Integrated Care Foundation Trust. Doesn't trip off the mouth very easily, but it does what it says on the tin. And rather than having the perverse in incentive of bums in beds, uh, to fund, to put it crudely, um, uh, crudely, they um, they now provide community services, and they're doing a lot more outreach work uh, in people's homes, uh, in community centres, in leisure centres, in GP surgeries. Um, far more convenient for people to access those services there than to have to trundle up to Tameside Hospital. We need more of that, and that's the kind of shift of focus that we will see. And just quickly, just whether you had any thoughts on the um, audiology services point in the national. Well, look, crisis. it's a really important um, matter that Jordan uh, raised, and um, it's beyond my pay grade to say yes, you can have a children's uh, audiology national advisor. But certainly, the last Labour government had clinical leads uh, that focused on specific areas, and uh, certainly, if there is a need to look at this. Um, then I will take that away and uh, let the Shadow Minister responsible know your views and to touch base with you and see whether we can work something out. Uh, and Paul, final thoughts? Uh, well, I'm, I was going to say we haven't really answered the audiology question and I'm probably the least qualified to do so. <laughs> not my own expertise, so I'm relieved that you picked that up a bit, Andrew. But I do think it's um, audiology services are not unique in yeah. being somewhat... Um, no Cinderella, if you like, in the uh, in the way that health service is provided. I think dentistry is another one that needs a, a good look at. You know, uh, particularly children with chronic dental problems are, uh, you know, a major public health issue. So I do think uh, a future Labour government looking at healthcare provision in the round probably needs to look at uh, at dentistry, audiology, uh, optical services, particularly for uh, for sort of common eye conditions that go beyond. Uh, simple sort of spectacles. I also I agree with nearly all of Andrew's comments really about primary care. I, I, I don't totally agree with Sam. I'm afraid that you can't take money away from acute care, possibly because I was a GP myself for a you know decade or so. So uh, and I, I think the more we can move uh, services, diagnostic services, and the many services that currently take place in hospital, and a lot of things that take place in outpatients could be done far more effectively and efficiently. On, uh, in some kind of community care setting, whether that's in, in what would be currently general practice uh, buildings or some other community care setting. And I, and I think, um, you know, a lot of the multiple touch points that go on, 
when people present with uh, one or more health conditions that need investigation could, could be vastly streamlined by moving some of the funding into primary care. I think that would probably help answer some of the issues with, with retention in primary care because I, you know, you're more expert, expert than me because you're still there. But they, but I think, um, you know, part of the, the job satisfaction, if you like, would improve if you, if you were... Uh, left one was less frustrated with all of the um, you know the barriers in the way, and I think the more services were moved to primary care, mm -hmm. the, the more healthy that would be, not just for the nation, but for those people actually providing the care as well. Thank you. Uh, with that, I'm going to bring the event to a close. I'd like to thank our panelists for what's been a brilliant and really enlightening uh, discussion. Uh, thank Maximus uh, for supporting this event. Thank everyone here uh, for coming uh, and taking part and for your excellent questions. Uh, as I said, this was our last event of conference, but if you would like to relive the fun and happen to miss any of them first time around, then all the recordings will be up on our website uh, this week. So uh, do tune in and have a listen to those. Uh, thank you very much and enjoy the rest of the conference.